So I'd like you to introduce yourself, Dr. Rashi. Thank you so much, Rosalind, for inviting me to today's show. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here to be able to talk about what mental health is and what do psychiatrists do. So thank you so much, and you got the right pronunciation. Dr. Rashi, <laughs> um, if I may step in, I would also like to, to welcome you to this weekend interview and um, to let you know that uh, that we're very honored that uh, you take the time um, to to share with us and to teach us tonight. So welcome to this weekend interview. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Okay. So, Dr. Rashid, I'd like to commence by asking you to define mental health, the different ways it manifests itself in adults, youth, children, and the elderly. Of course, like I said, it can be very deep and wide, but just a, a summary of how the definition of mental health is various um, juncture in life. So mental, mental health is commonly used to describe a state of emotional and social well-being. You know, when you're feeling good, when you have the ability to handle everyday stresses of life, and one can lead a fulfilled life, which means basically having meaningful relationships, being able to study or work. So depending on what stage of your life is, it's really doing what you are expected to do and being able to do it. You know, it's not the absence of stress, just the ability to manage the stress. So if you're mentally healthy, whether you're a child or an adult, you are basically fulfilling the role that society expects of you at that age. Okay, indeed. Thank you very much. Another thing I'd like you to talk about is give us a brief history of mental disorders. Um, from 50 years ago, if you want to go as far back as 100 years ago, so we can compare it from then to now as far as what it meant in those days to people to be mentally ill and how it was um, viewed and, tr and managed versus today. Again, a summary, because we could spend the whole hour talking about that point alone. Now, you're absolutely right. That's a topic that can take hours, and I'm not even an expert on the history of psychiatry. But, um, you know, if you think back about mental health or mental illnesses, say, 100 years ago, I mean, 50 years ago, um, the illnesses themselves existed. Um, the, you know, if you even look back and you look at 200 years ago, illnesses have existed all through the time. It's not a new phenomenon. But they were not recognized uh, 50 to 100 years ago. Uh, for the most part, if you suffered from a mental illness that time ago, you would probably be labeled as crazy and be put in an institution, and there were no treatments. So you will not improve, or if you improve by yourself, you will have no choices in the treatment. Uh, today, the word is not ideal where mental illness is concerned, but there is much more acceptance and knowledge about what mental health is, what mental illnesses are, and both among the physicians, but also in the general community. The stigma is still there, but compared to say even 50 years ago, it's nothing. Uh, to make it a more concrete example, so suppose 50 years ago, um, you have a woman who just gave birth and developed depression, commonly known as postpartum depression, um, to probably be either, you know, if the family could afford it, be locked in a room uh, and never come out, or be put in an institution with no choices, with no treatment, with, with no no ability to get out of the institution. To get there, you're there. Up today, if you had such a person, it would most probably be recognized right away. Um, almost all hospitals today survey every mother that just gave birth for depression. Um, you would be able to choose what kind of treatment you want, medications, therapy, um, whether you need hospitalization or not. And at every stage of the treatment, you have a choice. And you will get better. So even though there's stigma that exists today, uh, 
definitely there is like a dramatic difference between 50 years ago and today. Uh, can, can I jump in a little? The, sure. When Doctor um, Rashi is, is speaking, there is um, there's a lot of noise on the line, static kind of noise. So um, because we want the listeners to 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 hear her very clearly, um, I'm going to I'm going to break to go to a quick break and see if um, if I can reestablish the connection and we can get a clearer line. So, so just hang in there for me, and um, uh, and we'll see if we can reestablish the contact. Okay. Okay. D Enterprises Inc. is your one-stop shop for web design and development, web hosting, domain names, dedicated servers, live event streaming, online ticketing, custom stream players, smartphones and tablets, electrical and mechanical parts and tools procurement, business supplies and equipment procurement, including computers, motors. Breakers, panels, commercial printers, and copiers. G&D Enterprises, Inc. The services you need when you need them. Find us online at gandenterprisesinc.com or call us today for more information at 617-329-9434. Fast, effective, efficient service. Listen, as, as I was saying, that um, we had a little bit of technical difficulty, but we have um, Ms. Carbon and Dr. Rashi back on the line. So let's, let's, let's go back to, to Roslyn and we continue our conversation. Ros- Roslyn, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Dr. Rashi. Now, Dr. Rashi, you mentioned the word stigma, and we fainted over it very gently. But in my experience over the years, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a registered psychiatric nurse also, and I utilize the skills of my psychiatric um, learning in my daily life on a daily basis. <laughs> and people who know me might say, and she's here so cuckoo? Well, thank God I have that on, on my bills to help me along. But um, seriously speaking, the stigma, I, I would like to find out from you. In your practice, do you notice the difference with the stigma stigmatization of mental health in American-born immigrants, in the, um, American, Caucasian, or Caucasians from immigrants, basically. What I'm trying to find out is, do you see a difference in the amount of stigma that's placed on mental health in American-born people versus immigrants, either races? You are absolutely right in asking that question, Rosalind. Um, Stigma is there in this country in American-born citizens too, but most of us who are immigrants that come from other countries, um, the stigma is even higher. Um, So over the world, mental health and mental illnesses have encountered stigma, and in the last 20 years or so, there has been a lot of progress. So this progress is more in the developed countries like United States and UK, but most of the rest of the world still believes um, has all beliefs about mental illness. So if you are an immigrant um, in this country, you probably will have more stigma about treatment. You know, for one, just by being an immigrant, um, one has more struggles and issues and uh, dilemmas about being accepted, not accepted, looking for a new job, learning a new language. Uh, so added to that, if you have an additional mental illness, it's, it's highly stigmatizing for the person, for the family, and for the community. So most um, immigrant patients uh, 
do not seek treatment as much as white Caucasians who are born in this country do. Mm-hmm. And um, I would imagine knowledge deficit plays a major part in that. Knowledge deficit language, being aware of the resources that's available to one. And would you also agree that um, even being aware that certain changes in one's behavior pattern is really related to some mental issues being developed, as opposed to maybe one of the cultural beliefs that one had back home, where the home is, you know. Um, so now you're in America, you came from wherever you came from, you came to the States, but usually we come back to, to communities in kind from where we came from. As a West Indian, I might find myself in an area which is heavily populated with West Indian, the Spanish person, the vice versa, Indian, Polish, Irish, everybody tends to find their own little area. So although they're in a foreign land called America, they're still continuing the traditions and rituals and beliefs, especially the older people raising the younger kids here. So therefore, if there's mental, mental issues going on, a lot of it might be addressed accordingly from before. Would you agree? Definitely. Um, you know, in some ways, it is good for people who are immigrating to continue with their cultural beliefs. It, it mm-hmm. is, you know, um, according to studies, people that completely give away their original culture uh, do not do as well. But people that completely stick only to the original culture also like do not that well. So I think uh, people that are the most well-adjusted are people who are able to carry on some of their traditions and rituals, but also assimilate in the new American life. Mm-hmm. It is. It really becomes even more important for parents. You know, if you're just an uh, immigrant, you know, immigrant family that has no children, uh, it, you won't struggle with it as much. But as your children start to grow, and yes. they grow in an American school, uh, the, the difference in the clash between the beliefs becomes very important. So you're absolutely right, Rosalind. And then I guess that's where we find a lot of um, depression, uh, low self-esteem occurring because the children, and there's some confusion for the young children also. And as we talk about youth, I can't help but have this desire to mention young black men because of the racial issues and the, there's almost a innate or inborn negativity as far as the history of this country goes um, towards the, the, the black people. And then you have your young black man who came from another country now trying to be accepted in this culture, where he came from, he didn't know anything about racism, never mind, I'm a young black man, I've got to be careful how I talk, who I talk to, where I hang out, and all this sort of thing. But he's bombarded with all these social negativities that is foreign to him, while as a young person, he's just trying to assimilate and be accepted. So at home, his parents are telling him one thing, at school, he's being bullied, and it's a lot of confusion, and you could, I would imagine, Doctor, you might see a lot of that, the offspring of that, where children are admitted with depression, um, suicidal tendencies, low self-esteem, not performing well at school. Can you elaborate on that aspect of it, please? Uh, definitely. You've touched on a very important issue. Um, for children of immigrant parents from any culture, it is a stressful mm-hmm. clash where you know, you are trying to obey the peer pressure and mix in with your peer crowd, what, which is an American crowd, but your parents are 
setting more traditional rules and limits and asking you to sort of live in a more traditional way. And for most of the immigrants, for most of the societies, it's a more more uh, more of a stricter way of living, right? Like parents have stricter rules, they expect more discipline, more obedience, those kind of things. But I think for for children from uh, children who are black, it's even worse because in this country there is a long history of uh, mm-hmm. racism that's again improving, but there is a long history, and they have to learn one more aspect of it which they haven't grown up with. So it can lead to. Not every child will have mental illness or problems in adjustment, but every child will face these stressors. And some children or some youth will end up uh, suffering from depression or anxiety or drug use, depending on what area you're living in, what is your really the peer circle. So Mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, and uh, drug use are the most common problems in teenagers. And any of them can lead to suicide, which is obviously a much more serious problem. Yes. Okay. Um, there's a word we use casually, depression. Now, as a nurse and middle assessment, we have a, a scale that we use to assess our patients. So regarding on the medic- their mental status, we have to really understand what kind of medication to give them. Do we restore them to the psychiatrist for more resources? And whenever you ask people, do you suffer from depression? And they all look at me like, yeah, I, I have depression. And I have to clarify, are you treated by a psychiatrist for depression? Because everybody feels because they're sad or they're not happy for whatever reason, that's depression. Can you define depression? And while we're on the world, the, the world of depression, can you also just touch on major effective depression versus depression? The psychiatric illnesses or mental health have this big difficulty where um, we are talking about emotions that are normal and every human being should have, and then we label them into a disorder. And that makes it very confusing for a lot of people. So... Feeling sad or feeling depressed uh, at times in your life is normal and expected for all humans to be. That's mm-hmm. good. You can feel something. Um, you know, if you really have something bad going on in your life, like a loss or a medical illness that was just diagnosed, you will feel depressed for some time. But feeling depressed or the emotional state of sadness is not equal to depression, as you're rightly saying. Depression as an illness, when I as a psychiatrist say someone has depression, means that you've had depressed mood, uh, and most of these symptoms that I'm going to talk about should be there for at least a couple of weeks. It's not just that yesterday I felt like this after I had a phone fight <laughs> with my boyfriend. <laughs> so you have to have depressed mood, uh, which is sort of persistent. It doesn't lift up that easily. You stop you either stop sleeping well or you start sleeping too much. You either stop eating and lose weight or you start eating too much and you start gaining weight. You stop enjoying things that you normally like to do. So if you love gardening and you're depressed, you can't seem to get the energy to go and do gardening or enjoy it. You start withdrawing from people. You don't enjoy talking to anyone else. You feel tired all the time. Um, you feel that life is useless. There's no hope for you. Um, at times you might feel that you are bad somehow, you're worthless. Um, along with these things comes this withdrawal. You don't do well in school if you're a child. It's hard for you to go to work. 
And when the depression gets really bad, then things like you can hardly get out of bed, you don't like to take a shower, you stop taking care of your hygiene, and you start having thoughts of, I wish I was better off dead. And then eventually, let me just kill myself and here's what I'm going to do. And that's the worst kind of depression. So it's a whole spectrum of mild depression to severe depression. But just sadness by itself does not lead to lead a psychiatrist to diagnose depression. You have to have some of these other symptoms. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's one. Thank you, Dr. Then we have major depressive disorder. Let's just discuss that for a moment, please. Yeah, major depressive disorder is just what I was describing, but basically all the symptoms present for two weeks. So there is no difference between minor depression and major depression, except in in minor depression you might have less symptoms uh, and there'll be less intense, you know. So you might have depressed mood, you might be enjoying things less, but you're still able to go to work. You're still able to drag yourself and do the things you normally do, but you're sort of walking in a cloud. You're feeling like everything is black or foggy. So major depression is when you are not even able to function. Mm-hmm. Okay. And usually some subtle thoughts are in major depression. Okay. I'd like to, Anthony, would you like to interject at this moment because I was going to read a news alert that I researched and found, which was pretty poignant as far as um, mental health in the immigrant. Actually, yes, I was just, I was just waiting for, for a little pause. It was very interesting. But um, as we talk about depression and um, a major uh, and minor depression and the symptoms. Uh, and we also mentioned the the stigma that's associated with mental health. Part of it is uh, is is the reluctance um, sometimes um, is the reluctance of people to seek help. Um, the probably the the inability of of family members and friends to to recognize when mm-hmm. they should probably intervene and 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 try to get um, assistance for for an individual. And and also probably um, especially since we, since we we mentioned um, immigrants and uh, and the impact on immigrants, um, maybe maybe the, the expertise in the community, uh, maybe persons go to their regular doctors who may not necessarily diagnose depression, because uh, depression sounds like something a little bit mysterious for a person like me, you know. Um, you're this, you're a doctor. You you've been clinically trained. You see it all the time, so you may recognize it. But someone like me who may not, um, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit more on on the symptoms, the signs. Uh, maybe people need to err on on the side of caution without necessarily making a person be paranoid, you know. But um, maybe we can do a little bit more on on what are the indications and at what stage maybe you would suggest that maybe. Um, we can advise somebody to seek help or to find help for for a loved one. You are absolutely right. Um, It can be very hard sometimes for family and friends uh, to know when to help. Uh, It is important to remember that the person who is suffering from depression might not recognize it himself usually, mainly because when you're depressed, you stop thinking about Mm. what you're doing or why it's happening to you. Um, how can family and friends see it? So, you know, something that happens to you, you feel sad. And, you know, you might 
for a few days, stay alone in your room, not do things that you really like. Or, But when your best friend calls, you want to talk to the best friend and tell them that you're feeling sad. And when family members approach, you will sometimes talk about it, but you'll probably eat okay after the first two days of adjusting to the shock. Then you notice that you have a friend or family member that hasn't really smiled at you well for a few weeks now, and it just can't seem to get better. And they start doing things that they really used to like, like say, you know, I feel stressed out about the work, but I do enjoy shopping. And when you say, okay, you are feeling sad because your boyfriend broke up with you, let's go shopping. And for that two hours, I'll be cheered up. For the most part, you don't need to worry about a person that can be cheered up, that is eating properly, that is sleeping properly, someone who's not losing weight. Um, I think the signs and symptoms that should really concern friends are when you see a person who never seems to, you have changed in personality, basically. People say, you know, and that's why sometimes superstitious beliefs can come in that she was such a cheerful person and now she looks different and sounds different and she's not doing any of the things that she used to do. She's not cooking anymore. She's not laughing anymore. She's losing weight. Uh, she doesn't want to do anything. Um, her grades are falling off or it's hard, you know, she's getting in trouble at work. And the last but the very important symptom is when somebody starts saying, you know, I wish I was dead or I wish I could end my life. That is a time when people should definitely intervene. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Rashi, on the point of suicide, which you just mentioned, I would like our audience to also recognize and understand that a lot of times this patient, this person rather, who is in this state of emotional malaise and others, some of them are going to a fetal position, will not move, will not feed themselves, will not get up to go to the bathroom. Now this patient all of a sudden starts moving about and talking and a little more involved. That is very suspicious, correct Dr. Rashi? This is a time when that person maybe has a plan on how they're going to end their life. So you've got to be very careful when somebody is depressed will not talk, will not move, they're laying in the bed like a, in a fetal position, and all of a sudden they're up and they're looking like, wow, they just rebound and they're feeling real good. That's because prior to that, like the doctor said, they were thinking, they were in a vegetative state. Now, over the period of days they've been laying there, they finally decided, I'm done with this life. And just by making that decision, it gives them this will to get up and move and get their plan in action. So it's important if somebody says to you, you know, I'm done with this life, I'm set up. How many they have a plan? Because usually they have a plan as to what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And at that point, you need to get help ASAP for that person. And it, it, it's, 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 it's critical. It's like having a heart attack or a stroke. When somebody's telling you, from a depressive, I, I'm done, I'm tired, I, I'm fed up. And then they start waking up and putting their clothes on and want to do things. Yeah, they, now they're ready to put the, the, plan in act, the, act, the plan in action. Take it, you are elaborate, doctor. Yes, you are. Um, you know, a lot of times someone who might be very severely depressed can actually feel better for a little while because they made a decision to end their life. Um, mm -hmm. One of the common, you know, we're talking about depression. I just want to 
clarify that most depressed patients don't get suicidal. We're talking about people who are seriously depressed, and these are the patients that are hard to miss. But most people and most family members and friends will be less severely depressed than this. But seeing that you're talking about suicide, and it is an important thing, um, one common uh, issue with suicide-related stuff is that most people hesitate to ask someone fearing that if I ask you, Rosalind, are you suicidal, that might somehow give you the idea of being <laughs> suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have found in research, that that's never the case. So if you have concerns, and maybe you're overreaching, maybe the other person has no such thing, and it's a good idea to just ask someone, have you, are you having any thoughts to kill yourself or hurt yourself? And the worst that can happen is that the person say, what, are you crazy? Why are you asking me that? <laughs> uh, so it's better to ask. And uh, from what I see, most patients who are that depressed, who are suicidal, they will not lie to you. Most patients freely tell people that they are feeling this way when asked. And this way you know what's happening. So it is a good thing to ask people if you have any doubts or concerns. Yeah, absolutely. I like, I like, like I said um, prior to this little this segment, I would like to read this um, very brief um, material I found. And I found it from the Psychiatric News Alert dated March the 4th, 2013. And it says, immigration may contribute to mental health problems. Previous research has suggested that immig- immigrating to a foreign country was a risk factor for schizophrenia. Now it appears to be a risk factor for other mental disorders as well, according to findings of a large population study headed by Elizabeth Contour Grace, a PhD at Lund University in Sweden and published in JAMA Psychiatry um, paper. They studied almost 2 million Danish residents, not just originally from Denmark, but from some other con- countries as well as um, Danes living abroad. So, is, what do you have anything to add to that, Dr. Rashi? As far as the, the idea that um, immigrants have a higher risk, by this particular study of suffering um, from schizophrenia and at a higher risk for other mental disorders. You know, Not this particular lot, study, but in general. There is a lot of uh, people that think that immigrants have more psychiatric problems or mental health illnesses than non-immigrants. But uh, I was also looking this topic up recently, and it seems it's not that clear cut. There might be immigrants who are actually healthier. Um, the, the data on this, on who has it more or less, is not that clear. But one thing that is clear is that immigrants definitely have more stress. Mm-hmm. Um, immigrants also have less access to care. Like, you know, I don't know about the rest of you who are listening, but I come from a country where healthcare system is much more simple. And I'm a doctor here, but I still find the system very complicated. You know, there is levels of insurances, there's places you can go for free care, but there are places that will charge you. It's it's really you really have to pay a lot of attention. So if you're an immigrant, you don't really know what to do and it feels overwhelming. Um, and for the most part, if you're, for, you know, if you're a new immigrant, you probably don't have health insurance, and you probably don't know that where mental health uh, health is concerned. Um, every area has a designated 
mental health center where they are supposed to offer treatment for free. Now, you might have to wait or the clinic might be busy, but in in this country, every, regardless of where you live, you have an assigned mental health center where you can go to for treatment for free. Sure. But, the, you know, when you're a new immigrant, you won't even know how to find where to go. What is that place? So, uh, in addition to the stress, I think it is really hard to get the resources. And then, of course, if you don't speak the language or if your native language is not English, that really makes it very hard. Yeah. Okay. And uh, um, if I may jump in here, I, I, we need to take a quick break. And, um, okay. Uh, so when we come back on the other side of the break, uh, we, we're going to continue the discussion. It's coming, becoming very interesting in terms of the stresses of, um, of immigration. Uh, but this is this week an interview for Wednesday, July 16th, 2014. And with us, we have our our in-house health expert, um, this Rosalind Carbon, and she's having a conversation with Dr. Ratchi. And our topic tonight is mental health. And um, we're getting some very interesting tidbits, so stay with us. And when I come back from the break, I'm going to give out the call-in number. Um, so if any one of the listeners would like to join in the conversation, you will get your opportunity at that time. But we'll take a quick break, a quick word from the sponsor, and we'll be right back. New York in the trust, State Massive, the Calypso Royalties, a.k.a. King of Kings, is back with a special tribute to man himself. Come see the reigning and seven-time monarch king of Dominica. King Dice, alongside King Hunter, King Wizard, Rabbit, and Shonada, with special guest performance, Liana, Jama B, Chris B, Mighty Umi, D-Rose, Bookley, D-Wave, Intruder, D-Bob, Sly, hosted by Alex Powell, Bruno, King of Kings, Tropical Reflection Nightclub, 4501 Glenwood Road, Brooklyn, New York, 11203. $40 in advance, pay more at the door. Get your tickets early at islandeventticket.com. Save that date, August 16, 2014. K.O.K. in Brooklyn. Remember that date, Kings is back in town and you're going to be there. You can't make it to New York, live streaming on TVNTV.net. Otherwise, get your tickets early at islandeventticket.com. You hear? Me, I want to Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so we are back, and I thank you for staying with us through the break. Uh, this is this week in interview, and tonight is our health care segment where we, we try to give you enough information to empower you to, to take charge of your health. And tonight we are dealing with mental health and our, our in-house health care professional, Ms. Rosalind Carbon, is having a conversation with um, Dr. Rachi. And um, for those of you who may want to call in, uh, I've been getting some text messages, but you may call in um, if you want to be on air. The call-in number is 202-525-7231. Uh, 202-525-7231. Um, you may call in. Um, also, uh, we have a listening number, and um, sometimes I am remiss in providing that number um, because um, some person, everybody, 
has access to the internet all the time. Um, so let me just give out that number as well. Um, you can, I mean, if you're listening, you're already listening, but you could, you could text somebody that number, 786-837-2210. 786-837-2210. If you call that number from your phone, you can also um, catch TDN Radio. And so without, without much um, ado, because we are, we are already um, three quarters of the way, to, to 9 p.m. Uh, Rosalind, before before we I, I hand you back, I wanted to delve a little bit into um, the role that drug use uh, might play in in inducing um, less than perfect mental health, and and also I mean you know those issues are sometimes difficult to deal with, but but most of our listeners are, are Caribbean based. And um, we do know that, I don't know if it's, it's necessarily a higher percentage than other, than other groups, but we know that there is a, a, a pretty high um, you know, marijuana use. Um, I have personal experience in my family with, with, with two of my mem family members who had mental health issues. Those were alcohol-related. And, um, and it was a tough thing to deal with. They've come out on the other side. Uh, pretty well, but um, at the time it was pretty tough to deal with. But it, um, those were alcohol-related. I, You know, I have a lot of friends I know who, who use um, marijuana. So if we could talk a little bit about, especially in young people, um, they go through that experimental stage where they, where, they, where they use drugs and the role that that may play in deteriorating their, their mental health. I'm so proud of that's very important. Um, there are many, many kinds of drugs that can be abused and used, but maybe let's start with marijuana. And I think it's good that you mentioned marijuana because many, many Americans and many, I'm sure many listeners believe that marijuana is pretty harmless. It's something your parents and grandparents might have smoked when they were younger. And a lot of times we know of people that smoke pot and have no problems. They are fully functional. They're doing well. And that makes the children or the teenagers believe that it's 100% safe. The, the truth of the matter is that uh, this one, marijuana is not the simple marijuana that was grown 50 years ago. Uh, we have a lot of variations on marijuana that are called synthetic marijuana or T2, and they have much more serious effects than marijuana. And second, uh, marijuana, smoking a joint or two, might be harmless for some people who use it, and they might never get addicted, and they might never have any major problems. But there are many, many teenagers who start smoking marijuana just experimentally, who get addicted, and who can have severe psychiatric consequences, including, you know, we were talking about depression. Depression is a serious illness, anxiety disorder, but even schizophrenia, where you can start getting psychotic symptoms, meaning basically losing touch uh, with reality, where you start hearing voices, start getting scared. So um, I I work in a hospital where in the emergency room I have seen patients come in for the first time in their life with these very serious symptoms that need hospitalization. And sometimes they're being precipitated by marijuana use. So marijuana is not harmless at all. Um, it can lead to serious addiction and can lead to other drug addiction but can also lead to very, very serious psychiatric consequences. That's good. 
And along with the marijuana these days, again, like I said, years gone by, I guess marijuana was marijuana. Now they list it with all kinds of things. So the children don't even know, or people, a lot of people don't even know what they're really taking in. You know, right. so these drugs are not just pure marijuana. All other chemicals are put into it for quicker highs and, yes, and quicker demise of the brain. Yeah. No, I, we mentioned, sorry, Doctor, go ahead, I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, no, you go ahead, that's fine. Yeah. Go ahead. So, I read, I read a study earlier which stated that, um, immigrants were highest, um, rates for, they were, they had higher risk classes for getting mental illnesses, schizophrenia, along with other illnesses. But there's, it's interesting that I also found another AGM public health, um, um, research paper, and it's a very short one, and it said the opposite. And I'm just going to read the result of the, uh, it's very short, I'll read it. Objective, we examined the prevalence of psychiatric disorders among black Caribbean immigrants, Caribbean black, and African-American populations, and the correlates of psychiatric disorders among the Caribbean black population. We conducted descriptive and age-adjusted analysis of the data from the National Survey of American Life and in-person household mental health survey of non-institutionalized U.S. blacks. Okay, we'll leave that. The results were very interesting. Compared with African-American men, Caribbean black men had higher risk for 12 months rates of psychiatric disorders. Caribbean black women had lower, that's what I thought was interesting, had lower odds for 12 months and lifetime psychiatric disorders compared to African-American women. Risks varied by ethnicity, immigration history, and generation status within the Caribbean sample. Listen to this. First-generation Caribbean blacks had lower rates of psychiatric disorders compared with second- or third-generation Caribbean blacks. And it's elevated, and um, compared with first-generation Caribbean blacks, third-generation blacks had markedly elevated rates of psychiatric disorders. Dr. Rush, when I read that, I thought, are they telling me that my children and my grandchildren and great-grandchildren are more susceptible to mental health? You're right, uh, Rosalind. This is actually very interesting. Um, I didn't know this, this study, but um, it sort of makes sense in the sense that, you know, if you were the first-generation immigrant, um, you were still in solid touch with your culture and you probably didn't have you know, you will have a solid job, you know what you're doing, whereas your children um, are not that sure of their identity. Um, you know, they are also dealing with the stresses that blacks deal in America for mm-hmm. a century. So I think it, it is, so every every immigrant group has its own stresses. So in part, maybe the, the second generation has those struggles on whether I'm an American or I'm a Caribbean. Like, what is my identity? And that causes more stress. And I'm not sure about the rest, like conflicts between what parents expect versus what society expects. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the areas you live in and if there's any drug use. So all these can increase. No, I, I have to say I was a little bit surprised to hear that even the third generation has an increased risk. I would have thought that yeah. would have normalized to just American risk. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I was a little surprised to myself, and that's why I brought it up. I, 
because I see that by the third generation, they've been more, more American and more stimulated with the culture and less um, struggles with the dual cultures or even triple cultures that they raised in. Yeah. Um, two things I need to talk on real quick, and then, Doctor, we're going to give some information to our listening audience on how to best take care of their health, their, well, their health wellness, um, their mental well, wellness, sorry. Touch on bipolar, because this seems to be, people casually talk about, oh, you're bipolar, ha, ha, ha. Um, I would like you to talk about bipolar, and I'd also like you to just touch base on schizophrenia and the treatment for both of these things. Because somehow, from my readings, it seems to be more prevalent in um, our society and our culture now, as we just touched this on the marijuana use. Um, and also the fact that people might have the onset, but because of culture and knowledge deficit or the reluctance or awareness of resources available to one, that these um, psychotic um, mental illnesses are on the horizon would have been picked up until it's chronic. Let's discuss that further, especially bipolar. Thank you. The bipolarness in the recent 10 years has sort of become a little bit of a fashionable diagnosis to use. Um, mm -hmm. Bipolarness in a traditional way is diagnosed when you have depression, the way I described earlier. So you have weeks of feeling that de severe depression. Then you start to get better and you might be completely normal for some time, and then you start to go in the opposite direction of depression, which is manic. And manic phase is usually, um, I can describe it as, basically when you're feeling up all the time, and you're feeling that you can, you never get tired, you have so much energy that you don't need sleep or that much sleep. Uh, you feel very happy. You talk very, very fast. You know, some of us culturally talk fast, but talk faster than your usual, where your friends say, wait a minute, what's going on? You sound different. Where there are too many ideas in someone's head, and sometimes people will describe it as racing thoughts. Um, where you might end up starting too many projects at the same time and start doing reckless things like, you know, getting a credit card debt of 30000 or indiscriminate sex or drugs. So bipolar disorder really is an illness where you have these phases, phases of depression that might last for a few weeks and phases of mania that might last from anywhere from at least four or five days to a few weeks. And that's why it's called bipolar, because you have both poles of the emotional state. Um, in today's world, it seems to be used very, very loosely sometimes. Um, you know, if you are a teenager having a little bit of a mood swing where you're a very pleasant child five minutes ago and suddenly you're standing doors, it's normal. But a lot of this kind of behavior is nowadays inter misinterpreted as bipolar. Also, if you're doing street drugs, you will have ups and lows. If you're doing an upper when you're taking the drug, you feel good and high and you get the drug, you start to withdraw and you start to look depressed and irritable and hostile. So a lot of people who do drugs are also misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, schizophrenia is a much more chronic and more serious illness. Um, schizophrenia, the main symptoms are that the person loses touch with reality. So basically, they have what we call as delusions, where they start believing in things that are not there. 
So if you're paranoid, you might start feeling that people are trying to hurt you, FBI is following you, uh, you might have beliefs like there's a chip in your brain, all kinds of abnormal beliefs that are firmly believed in. The person is completely convinced that this is happening. And usually in association with these beliefs comes things like you start hearing voices and you can't see someone. Um, you sometimes start seeing things. So these symptoms together, uh, along with these symptoms, there is severe impairment. You ha- you stop functioning. You stop doing what you're doing. You isolate yourself. You, you do not take care of yourself. Um, schizophrenia is harder to miss. Families will notice that their loved one is doing odd things. They're not themselves. Um, do you want me to go into treatment, Rosalind? Do we have time for that? Um. Yes, we do. Yes. Okay. So, um, instead of talking about each of these illnesses, I'll just say globally, nowadays, psychiatry has made a lot of progress. There's many kinds of treatment. One common treatment is talk therapy, known as psychotherapy, and there's many kinds of talk therapy. And when you have an illness like anxiety or depression that's on the milder side, talk therapy by itself can help treat you. So you don't always need medications for every disorder. But when your symptoms are more serious or if you have a psychotic symptom, then we do need medications. And we have medications for depression called antidepressants. We have medications for anxiety. Uh, We have medications for psychosis and schizophrenia called antipsychotics. And we also have medications called mood stabilizers. So depending on what symptoms one person has, um, you can use one or more medications to control those symptoms. Yes. Um, With the medications, a lot of times people um, with schizophrenia, you can live, you can have a different quality of life, a pretty good quality of life, if you maintain your medication, like any other physical illness, hypertension, diabetes, if you don't take your medication, you're going to relapse, you're going to have other um, body functions or body parts breaking down, multi-system breakdown. With mental illnesses, schizophrenia, for example, it's imperative that you can, you follow your medical, your psychiatric regime, your medication, your therapy, because along with medication, it, they also do therapy, so it's a, a combination of medications that um, approaches that you for. And I'm hoping on schizophrenia because it's also a very old diagnosis and a very common diagnosis, and it can be a little scary for people. But I've seen schizophrenics who are professors. They take their medication and they continue with their quality, with their healthy quality of life. I also see people who don't take the medication and what can happen. So I really want to impound on people who might be listening who are family, friends, or themselves. Same way you need to take your hypertensive blood pressure medication, you need to take your antidepressant, your antipsychotic, which is medication for your schizophrenia and major schizoaffective disorders. And um, if you're having difficulties, they also give you medication for the side effects of the medication, so the tremors and the drooling and the shuffling of your gaze. If you're having side effects from the medication, contact your practitioner, your psychiatrist, ASAP, because then they can check your blood level and adjust your medication so the medication doesn't give you, it doesn't impede on your 
physical and mental well-being because if it's too much, it can send you, you know, into another kind of state of um, affairs, which is not pleasant. Where you're shaking and you're drooling and you're just all your physical bodies are out of control. So follow up with it. And if the patient themselves can't avail to these resources, it's imperative that the family members be very cognizant of what's happening with their loved one. And that, okay, I need to take my loved one to the doctor, get the blood, and keep your appointments. The appointments are important because that's where they check your level and therefore adjust your medications accordingly. But I just want to remind people that regardless of what mental illness you have, most of the time, with the multitude of treatments that Dr. Rashi mentioned, talk therapy or psychotherapy, medications of, of for the various illnesses, you can have a very healthy quality of life, have your children, and just live normally. That's such an important thing you just said, Rosalind. I think one thing for everyone to recognize is that if there is a mental illness in family, it is a good idea to research it. There is a lot that's available. Uh, but go to reliable sites like, say, NAMI, which is a patient organization, or to institutions that are, you know, academic centers that talk about these illnesses. Even um, National Institute of Mental Health has a website that gives very up-to-date, real information. So knowing the illness and knowing the treatment and understanding what are the options is the most important step family can take. Yeah, yeah. And with your health insurance also, um, you pay a deductible. Most health insurances, will pref- they subscribe to preventative medication, um, preventative medication, not medication, health care rather, or mental care, behavioral, they call it mental health or behavioral health. They're interchangeable. But insurances, if a lot of people, and I'm going to talk to an immigrant from anywhere in the, in the world, have a, get a little easy about psychotherapy and going to a psychotherapist for therapy. But most of the, the extended family has the grandmother and the aunties to talk to. But now that we're very much in a nuclear-style family, we don't have the extended family members to talk with, to bounce things off, have an objective person to confide in and share what in and out feelings. But it's okay, listeners, it's okay to go to a therapist, go to somebody who's objective and talk to them. Because a lot of times when you get all these things in your head out onto an objective plate, they can put it, break it down to you and now show it to you in a different light. Because now it's, you've released it out of your system. It's not all jumbled up in there. And like I'm saying, what I'm saying also it really is your insurance doesn't mind if you go for behavioral health or mental health. They encourage it. And um, I think a lot of poor people maybe don't even take advantage of um, utilizing that resource that's there. No, certainly. And um, I, I'm looking at the time. It's, it's, it's um, three minutes after after 9 p.m. Um, tonight, we we had pretty um, in, valuable information. Uh, I, I would like to to invite um, the good doctor to to say some to say some final words. Um, maybe maybe emphasize a little bit more on, on talk therapy because a lot of people have you know hesitant to go to the doctor because people imagine you go to the doctor for mental health they're going to put you on some medication that's going to make you 
that's going to change your behavior and uh, you know and as as Nurse Carbon said that that is that is seldom the case and uh, and as Dr. Rashi said sometimes the first step then the only step that's required is talk therapy so Doctor I I want to I want to give you the chance to um to give us a, a, some closing remarks um so so go ahead um thank you. So talk therapy is one of the most effective treatments we have for mental disorders or to even prevent, as Rosalind said, if you're starting to have stress or anxiety or you're not sure how to handle your current problems, psychotherapy really helps. It's a little bit different than talking to just family and friends because it is a more formal thing. You, you commit to go and see someone once a week or once every other week. And this is, I have done it myself. It's a wonderful experience and it's a great experience to grow as a human being because somebody is sitting there for 45 minutes listening to you talk and as a listener, as a trained therapist, they can help you see the pattern of behaviors that lead to problems in your life because, you know, we might want our, our husband or our boyfriend to change, but really the quality changes in our us, and that really helps deal with the depression or the anxiety. So therapists can really help you deal with that. And as you were saying, Tony, not every patient needs medication. Some patients can get better just with psychotherapy. Uh, some patients will need medication and talk therapy. So uh, talk therapy definitely underutilized, especially in immigrants, because we are sort of ready of what that means. Um, and I would really like to thank you, you all to invite, for having invited me to talk about a topic that's so close to my heart. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doctor. And um, I, I know you must be a very busy person, and we we are so um, delighted and we're very humbled and honored that you that that you join us for an hour. Um, I've been getting text messages. There's a lot of people who who are finding it extremely valuable and timely. And um, of course, um, Rosalind, as usual. Um, the very good choice of, of topic for tonight and, um, and a very interesting conversation. Thank you. Very welcome. Thank you. Okay. So, listeners, there you've had it. We've had another hour flyby. And um, I, I thank you so much for listening. And we, we, we really we will do this next month, um, month of August. And as usual, uh, this is this week in interview. And I would like to say thank you so much to our guests. Uh, good night, um, Nurse, Nurse Cab Rosalind Carbon, and um, good night, Dr. Rashley. Um, Rosalind, I, 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 before we go, I have asked the producers for a couple more minutes because um, how do you go about finding uh, a good psychologist or psychiatrist that you can, that you can go to? I don't know either one of you can touch on that really briefly um, before we find before our final good night. I could, this is a question that I got um, via text. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I chose Dr. Rashi to host this show with me because she's one of the best. So there we are, Dr. Rashi. Would you like to tell? So hold that thought. Hold that thought for me, please. And the next way you can. You go to your health insurance and you find out, you get a um, list of doctors in, within your network and in your area 
and you go online and research them and their background, their credentials are also listed. Um, and that's another good way of finding a, health, a mental health provider. But Dr. Rashi, she's impeccable as you just heard. Talk to her. I mean, she can talk to you about that question Tony just asked. Rosalind, I would like to add that in some ways it's also good to just ask friends. You will be surprised when you are talking about the issues you're having that almost every has already seen a psychiatrist. So knowing someone that your family has liked, your friends have liked, is very helpful too. Um, and if not, you just try the first psychiatrist that you find, and if that doesn't work, you try someone else. Um, it is important for you to like your psychiatrist much more than it is important to like your primary care provider because this relationship involves a higher degree of trust and, you know, you put yourself out there and you're vulnerable. So don't give up till you actually find a psychiatrist that you like. It doesn't always happen on the first try. Yeah. And if you like someone, make sure that your family knows, your friends know, and they can use that person the next time. Um, Tony, um, can Dr. Rashi give her number where she could be reached? Oh, certainly. Her business? We, certainly we Dr. Rashi? Uh, Rosalind, I can give the number for our clinic. I don't yes. really do outpatients. Uh, I am a specialist in inpatient uh, psychiatry. So the number for the department is 973-972-1048. Okay. Again? You got it down, Tony? 973-972-1048. And what, what, where is that clinic located? This is Rutgers New Jersey Medical School in Newark. Okay, Rutgers University School in Newark. Okay, so I, I know we can go on for, for another hour. So, so of course, Dr. <laughs> Rachi, we, we hope that you can come back and then we can and we can take it up again and, and, and move it move the ball even further along because I find the more that we talk about mental health is the more comfortable people will get about um, seeking help and the, and the more people seek help um, the less severe um, the, their mental issues will be so I thank you I thank you so much and, and we look forward to the next time um, that you you, uh, you on, on our program thank you will do I love doing that again thank you good night yeah. I just want to mention one thing, family therapy. Yes, family therapy also is very helpful. So it's not just one person going to for talk therapy or psychotherapy. The whole family can go in as a unit. Initially, they will stick it to the individual members of the family. Then they'll bring the whole family together and have an open discussion. Because sometimes one person might have a mental issue or a breakdown. But it's not necessarily where that's originating from. Okay. It can be a, it's a new family issue. I just wanted to leave that out there. Right, Again, we can discuss uh, that another time. It's something we can flesh out the next time we do we revisit mental health. So, so thank you so much before the producers um, run me out of the And I really appreciate um, a, another wonderful um, healthcare program. So thank you. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Good night. Good night. Thank you, Dr. Rassi. You're most welcome. Good night. Bye-bye. So, listeners, there you had it. Another uh, very interesting installment of this week in interview. We do this every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Um, Eastern Time. And uh, I'm your host, Anthony. 
most times we we interview somebody about about their work um about their life experiences sometimes i rant my little political rant but not necessarily political but you know i by now everybody know i'm a big um apostle for um caribbean unity so i normally push that as a matter of fact since i discovered um the caricom anthem i've been playing it every time i'm on the radio um because caricom has adopted an anthem and that just has me so pleased because it, it means that we're moving one step closer to to caribbean caribbean unity my mission uh so let me say thank you for staying tuned in locked on to tdn radio uh, for this week in interview, July 16th, 2014. I'd like to say thank you to my producer and engineer, Sam. Sam Judge, uh, over in um, San Antonio, Texas. And um, we want to say thank you to my co-host, uh, our in-house healthcare professional, Dr. Rosalind Carbon. Nurse Rosalind Carbon. Uh, who this, her, her guest tonight was Dr. Rashi. We, we really appreciated the conversation. And listeners, as usual, uh, on, on this week in interview, we try to give you information that you can act on tomorrow. So if you recognize that you need, you know, some type of mental intervention, don't be shy, you know. It happens to the best of us. And um, the sooner you get help, the sooner you'll be back on your feet and in the saddle riding again. So stay tuned to the um, TDN radio. Uh, the standman is up and take us up till midnight. I am your host, um, Anthony Drago. I will see you next week, Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Good night.